Today we're joined by the voice of the English summer in Mr. Daniel Norcross. Described by Wisden as the most interesting commentator of the new generation, Daniel's rise to the top hasn't been easy, but it's been a wonderful ride. Having been suspended from Oxford University for going overboard with a prank, when Daniel eventually did graduate, unlike his peers who went off to the city, he went to Tooting Beck and became a professional pub quiz machine player after coming up with a flawless strategy which allowed him to always beat the machine. Alas, this couldn't last forever, yet it kick-started a peculiar career which varied from attempting to exploit the dot-com boom to being a lead writer on a film until he finally found his calling by setting up the infamous Test Match Sofa, a rated R version of the show, which now gives him his livelihood in Test Match Special. So you were born in 1969 in London, um, the same time Mr. Sobers was sort of leading a very unsuccessful tour uh, to England for the Wisdom Trophy, losing 2-0. Uh, am, am I right in saying that you were born around these parts? Just for reference, we're yeah, in I was, yeah, yeah. I was, I was born about a mile and a half away. Um, I've been a very adventurous man. I lived the first 17 years of my life in Clapham South. Me too. Um, right. Yeah. So um, just off in between Broomwood and Thurley Road, yeah. in between the Commons, which is a very idyllic place to grow up. It's a very different place from the one it is now. Um, there's a much more socio-economically diverse community. Mm. Whereas now it's pretty much entirely lawyers and yeah. doctors and professionals. And uh, then in 1986, my parents, um, I was the youngest of four children. So once three of them had gone, um, my parents downsized from a family house in Clapham and bought a flat in Tooting Beck, just around the corner, a full Lovely. mile and a half away from where I was born. Literally, because I was born at home. Um, and I've lived in that flat pretty much, with the exception of university and a three-year sojourn in Pimlico ever since 1986. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah it's not bad. 30, 33 years pretty much in Tootingback. And what was going on in Clapham at the time? Was there a lot of remnants of sort of the West Indian spirit up the road? Yeah. I, I remember in those days you got, you know, thousands upon thousands of West Indian fans, most uh, Surrey and England West Indies cricket Totally, games. totally. I mean, the... Um, the racial mix, I mean, the racial mix here in Tooting is, is very, it's, I say diverse, it, it's fairly much on the Indian subcontinent. Um, when we moved here, it was a lot more Irish people yeah. here. And people from the Indian subcontinent moved in around the sort of late 70s, early 80s. In Clapham, it was mostly West Indian and Irish with some uh, Asian subcontinent influences. But I think the most um, notable thing, actually, was the class mix because these are these are beautiful houses in Clapham and it's sort of unimaginable now but you know our next door neighbor was a Turkish ice cream van man across the road was a delivery driver whose son ended up being the drummer for the meteors which was a short-lived band in the late 1970s you know next door to us were elderly couples who were renting on peppercorn rents upstairs Uh, there was an actress down the road Miriam Carlin uh, it was a completely different kind of group of people because housing wasn't actually expensive in those days. So uh, the entry price, if you like, to go and live in Clapham didn't involve you having to have a half a million pound salary. Sure. So um, the sort of atmosphere was a lot more, uh, well, I, it, it, was, it was a lot more equal, I think. People had uh, access to things that they don't have now from social mobility was... was was that much more advanced, I guess, than it is yeah. now. Nowadays, you tend to find you know, areas of defined almost by the 
the value of their properties and it wasn't really the case then a lot more there was a lot more rental properties and uh, I went to a, a local primary school which is a Church of England school uh, on the other side of Clapham Common and developed my love of cricket really from a very early age but not at all through school I mean no. people talk nowadays about is cricket disappearing from consciousness and do kids engage with it well I can assure you in the 1970s the, the question always asked me at school was who do you support and your answer was supposed to be Chelsea or Fulham or Crystal Palace my answer was always Surrey yeah Brown and you know you get kicking the shins for it um, so it was actually unpopular to be a cricket fan then. oh yeah yeah really yeah, but why yeah. was that well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it just... People still saw it as a boring sport. Uh, you didn't get taught it at school. Uh, not at primary school, certainly. You know, you had to cajole teachers into giving you a chance to play. They were, they were happy for you to play rounders, but the yeah, idea yeah. of playing cricket was just That's horrendous. Insane. Even though there's a bloody huge common right there. You know? yeah. <laughs> Perfect facility. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. And, and actually, if you think about attendances, I used to go to test matches from the age of seven, so from 1976. It's a very famous summer. Of course, in, in course English cricket history, because yeah, yeah. the West Indies came over and Tony Gregg ill-advisedly said, we're going to make you yeah, grovel. Yeah. And, uh, and he most certainly didn't do that. No. And I went to the Oval Test match for a couple of days and it was absolutely the most captivating thing. It was, it was full, but the reason it was full was partly because the ground capacity was much smaller than it is today, probably about 15,000, I would guess. And all of one side of the ground were West Indians from right. Brixton, mostly Brixton, Peckham, Kennington, Amazing. who live nearby. And, you know, that social demographic has changed quite a bit. And the engagement of that community in cricket has changed really massively over the last 40 years. Yeah. But then, you know, if West Indies weren't playing and you went to a test match, it wasn't full. No. Um, around the country, it wasn't. So, Well, it's so funny because I was going to say, you know, obviously... Uh, my father's generation, your generation, all these generations look back and remember cricket possibly in a better shape than it is now. But actually, listening to Fatty Batter's book, I don't know if you read that. Yeah, Michael Simpkins. Yeah, yep. where he talks about going to uh, Hove to watch county games in Sussex. And he said it was the same old crowd I would see at Surrey on a Wednesday when I occasionally go midweek for a championship game. And actually, oh, yeah. Surrey get good crowds, but you are you know, surrounded by... 40, 50, most, uh, mostly retired men. Oh, look, look. And that was the same in the 60s. I don't want to job too far forward to later bits, but I went to cricket a lot in my childhood. Um, and you know, by the time I was a teenager, it was perfectly normal for me to take myself off to the Oval. It was a great, great way of getting out of the house, you know, being away from your parents and what have you. And the people who were in the crowd, especially in the members area, were the elderly, you know, pensioners, disabled um, students and the unemployed yeah and I had a hiatus which we'll talk about of 20 odd years away from cricket having to get a proper job which is what screws everyone over ultimately of course if they love their cricket yeah and when I went back to it aged 40 the crowd consisted of pensioners the uh, disabled yeah. <laughs> students and the unemployed yeah as I say were different versions of them yeah, you know? yeah. so uh, you know, I don't think actually that the people who turn up to watch three-day county cricket as it was and four-day county cricket demographically are any different from what they have been for the last 40 years. There was a huge peak after the war because the country was starved of sport of and unemployment was high. Of course. And so, you know, loads and loads of people 
came charging in to watch county cricket. But then by the time you got to the 60s, it was dying. I mean, it's why one-day cricket was invented. So, you know, I was really a child of that one-day cricket boom. If you think, mm -hmm. like, 1976 was only 13 years after the first Gillette Cup. I mean, that's... It kind of freaks me out a bit really, <laughs> to, to think of it like that. Um, and it was introduced because they were desperately trying to get people into cricket in much the same way as the ECB is now setting up the 100. I mean, the parallels are enormous. Of course. A, and while we all talk about free-to-air television and say that cricket was available to everybody, it, it actually in the 60s and 70s it wasn't, so it wasn't ubiquitous in people's eyes. By the mid-70s, John Player League had come along and... Uh, the BBC was showing Benson Hedges Cup games and Gillette Cup games and you know, other limited overs matches. And it started you know, then to be pretty much ubiquitous. And I, I suppose I was really lucky that at the age of seven, eight, there were only three TV channels. And during summer, on many, many days, because there were five test matches a year and there were all those limited overs games, sure. there'd be a game of cricket on. Uh, and partly it was on because the channels themselves didn't have any other programming for the mm -hmm. afternoons you know it's, this was horrifying your younger listeners but uh, after the news BBC One had shut down BBC Two would shut down yeah. ITV would show so seven races from Doncaster yeah. and that was it yeah. so cricket could very easily fit into those schedules because it wasn't butting up against anything else and you therefore got massive exposure to it um, what what is odd about it I guess I say odd but it's very difficult to be honest about what works, you know, what's the gateway drug that gets you, because I'm a complete test cricket fiend. Me too. And I was brought up with it. Yeah, same. But I don't know whether it was because I saw 40 over games that got me into test cricket. I don't think it was, because I was seven when I was staring right. fixatedly at the West Indies. And, yeah, yeah. and those games were, for all the, the highlights you see, of Michael Holding bowling fast and... Viv Richards smashing it around. You know, there were a lot of periods where nothing happened. Of course. Uh, small bats yeah, pushing yeah. the ball at the offside for a single, if you were lucky. John Edrich digging in. Um, and it didn't seem to affect my enjoyment of the game and countless thousands of other people who yeah. got into cricket at that age. Um, there was a school <laughs> report of yours which read something along the lines of uh, you may never reach your full potential, but you'll be fantastic value at a cocktail party. You yeah. must have done quite well because you, you did get into Oxford University. Yeah, I suppose. But I, I very cunningly chose Latin and Greek, which uh, it was undoubtedly a difficult subject, but fewer people did it. Right. So I've always been quite good at working out the odds. Um, sure. I, I keep saying I'm the youngest. It's sort of important in my story because I had two older brothers and an older sister who are much older than me. And so... We used to play games all the time. And when you are 10 years younger than your older brother, you are not expected to win. No, so no, of course not. Uh, it becomes quite dispiriting if you lose the whole time. So by the age of seven or eight, I'd worked out how to cheat, how to cheat at cards without them noticing. Um, I'd worked out how to get good at games. You know, I mean, the actual, it's not a sport, no. but bridge is the one thing that I'm actually genuinely very good at. And part of that was because I was playing against much older people at a younger age. So... I was always fiercely competitive, but quite sly. And, you know, as a captain on a cricket field, I didn't think that you won by necessarily just scoring more runs and taking more wickets. You know, you, you stationed the smelliest man you had <laughs> at short leg downwind from the batsman, you know. <laughs> I don't have the natural skills in almost any kind of hand-eye coordinated sure. 
endeavour, but you I have to have find a, your ways to get to the top. Well, yeah, I yeah. have a fierce determination to try to win. Um, I don't believe in this taking part nonsense, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I came unstuck when captaining a team at club level when uh, I thought we'd killed a 70-year-old man oh my God. because I didn't. I told my 19-year-old left-arm fast bowler to stick one up his nose because he kept <laughs> on just defending off the front foot and sure enough he did stick it up his nose and the bloke flailed at it got top edge smashed him in the head he oh fell over God. knocked his bail off with his bat and <laughs> collapsed on the ground with blood pouring from his head and his eyes closed and then I thought oh god I've taken it too far yeah, yeah. mercifully he was alive and the wicketkeeper who's a member of the Crown Prosecution Service gets on screaming at me You've got to appeal, Dan. You've got to appeal. He's out here, wicket. Like, Wait a minute. Yeah, I've, yeah. Ta- I've taken my team on a terrible journey of and course. we've now lost all perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Let's remember this is a friendly game of cricket. And um, apart from um, the sporting successes throughout university, mm-hmm. was it an academically successful no, period no. of your life or not? No, no, no. It wasn't academically successful at all. Um, when I'd, I'd chosen to do Latin and Greek at school and part of the attraction to it for me was that very few people did it so you had your own room you had one-to-one teaching Uh, it was a little bit like kind of being slung shot out of the rigidly um, authoritarian school classroom Mm. in which you know 20 pupils sit and look at a teacher and I could sort of fast track my way into a a more a closer relationship with with the teacher so that uh, and You'd shamelessly manipulate that teacher, you know, by, by being the only person studying ancient Greek. You knew the teacher needed you to be happy and enthused and keep doing it. Otherwise, he was only ever going to be teaching GCSE level, so O level, you know, in those days. Sure. Um, and it sounds really naughty, doesn't it? But that was part of the thinking. And the other part of the thinking was, I'll be honest with you, you know, I was, I was a heavy smoker, even at the age of about 15, 16. And my classics teacher was a heavy smoker. And we used to smoke in a classroom. And that is lovely. It was, it <laughs> was friendly, heavily. I mean, you know, it'll kill me young. And kids, if you're listening, don't do it. But uh, it was these things. It was, it was these kind of ridiculous things that sort of appealed to me. The history, and I've always been fascinated in history generally. And I think actually that, that came from cricket, which I'll explain in a minute. Uh, that sort of catapulted me into classics as a subject. The problem with it was that whilst I loved the stories and I loved analysing the, the, the history of it, I didn't really pay a great deal of attention to reading the language. So by the time I finished university, I was far from fluent in Greek. And then they <laughs> test you on it just as you're about to leave. It's like the very last exam after four years. I mean, actually, it's five years since so I was kicked out for a year. Um, <laughs> what was that for? Uh, well, really devoting way too much time to drama and sport and nice. being in pubs and socialising. Of course. Although they claimed the reason was that I stole a bed and enticed a chemistry student onto it and then left him there in the middle of the garden. I mean, it's so... PG- that sounds too exact to not, you know, to, to, to be true. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was true, all right. But yeah, I stole it from the organ scholars room because um, at the, it was the end of term and I, they didn't they decided I couldn't stay in my room and, and I was strangely outraged by this. As you, you can be very strangely outraged by things in your early 20s <laughs> and, uh, and I was, so I took matters into my own hand. Um, what did you do for that year off then? I worked in Westminster Abbey bookshop. Well, that, that, that'll get you grounded again, won't it? Yeah. Oh God, it was awful. Yeah, I worked in the, I say it was awful. I mean, it was the, some of the more 
amusing moments in my life, but I was working with my girlfriend on a stall in Westminster Abbey in Poets' Corner and selling various, you know, guidebooks. And during that summer, it was 1991, so it was there that I heard everything in my life comes back to cricket. So I can remember it from the Headingley Test match of 91 when Mark Ramprakash made his debut and got 27 in both innings. And England won against the West Indies for the first time basically in my life sure. in England, pretty much, you know, uh, certainly in my conscious life. And I remember just being really irritable with American tourists who wanted to ask me questions while I've got the headphones on. <laughs> For God's sake, do you not understand? Steve Watkins about to bowl England to victory. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, thinking about it, all these stories make me very obnoxious. But <laughs> no, no, no. But where is this coming from? Yeah, classics. So uh, that, had, that had sort of got me into Oxford, really because there weren't that many people doing it. And I was an engaged and interested enough pupil uh, to be able to get through the entry process. Sure. By the time I got to university, I, I, was, I didn't have to do any exams. Because once you, once you pass the entrance exam for Oxford, you were in in November. Effectively, all you needed to get was two E's at A-level, which is basic pass mark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, in, in the hands of a man like me, that really meant that my attendance at school started to dip quite dramatically, and I didn't really put in an awful lot of effort. Um, got through my A-levels all right, went to university, got very much seduced by the beauty of the city of Oxford. I mean, it's just a fantastic place, and so there are so many interesting, vibrant, and intelligent people to talk to about a whole variety of subjects that my focus drifted you well, might say yeah, these things happen they do rather they do i mean i sort of regret it really because I, I wished i'd studied history and ancient history but um history had always been the thing that got to me because of a book that was bought to me bought for me when i was eight nine years old which is one of my favorite books ever written by david frith right which is a pictorial history of england australia test matches and it was it came out to commemorate the 100th anniversary in 1977 of the of first test match and it was filled with photographs and cartoons and drawings, what have you, from 1877 all the way up to How what amazing. was in the present day. Yeah, and it had every test match with a brief description of what happened and, you know, the major scores. And I read that and read that and read that. I don't know how many times. It was just, you know, my mother would stick Jane Austen books next to my bed <laughs> and go, don't need that. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's have a look yeah. at how Hornby and Barlow got on in 1882 against Smofford, <laughs> you know. Um, it was just... Uh, and, I, and I guess I was sort of intoxicated by that connection. And cricket, to me, at that time, I sounded like a bit of a, an old crusty, really. But I think what I loved about it as much as anything was that I could see this umbilical cord that linked the 1870s to the present day. I completely agree with you. It's, it's the romanticism that like the world has completely changed thousand times over and yet the one consistent thing over all that time is the romance and poetry which is alive in test cricket mm. like there's something just you can't even i don't know well, I, and i don't know why it affects us so greatly but it does well it really does doesn't it i mean you know you look at the pictures of the crowds you see you also see the sort of in this book particularly, you could see the evolution of fashion and clothes, yeah. you know, how everybody had a moustache in the 1880s. And then, yeah, yeah. then everybody's got a beard in the 1970s, you know. And nobody's got a moustache in the 1950s. Everyone's really clean cut, and, you know. And I guess it was like a, 
it was like a fast track primer for social history through the medium of something that I caught the bug for. It, it was a really beautiful way, I think, of bringing me uh, into a, or, or I guess it was a beautiful way of, of um, fueling my curiosity. Mm. Because cricket then became a way of examining and questioning all sorts of other things, you know, the wars and wars before that and conflicts before that. And so uh, that then took me all the way back to the ancients, whom I found utterly fascinating. And, uh, and, I, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading about them until, until my final exam when I had to um, read a piece of what they used to call unseen Greek and you have to translate it. And it was quite deliberately the most boring thing you'll have ever seen. The idea being that you, must, you wouldn't have read it before. So this happened to be, I, I thought that it was about uh, a party in which naked boys were dancing <laughs> on tables and everyone was pontificating <laughs> over the, uh, the moral decency or otherwise of this extraordinary parade. And it turned out that it was actually about the movement of oils and myrrh between ancient Greek city-states. So I completely did not <laughs> nail it. Just slightly wrong. <laughs> oh, we were so slightly, extremely and totally wrong. But it, as it turned out, um, when I went to TMS, many, many years later, 28 years later, well, more, 30 years later, when yeah. I met Vic Marks, it turned out that he had done exactly the same degree. Yeah. Um, he'd been taught by one of the same tutors and he got the same class of degree as me well, from the same college well maybe that's the way to become a TMS commentator well I've got to say yeah it's a small gene pool but if, yeah, you, yeah. if you want to be a TMS commentator go to St John's College yeah. in Oxford study classics and get a third class honours degree <laughs> um, upon leaving university what were your thoughts I put off really growing up for a year and a half and um, and played quiz machines and the way I the way it happened is I would go to my local pub at university, the Lamb and Flag, and they had this machine called Skill Cash, which was fantastically easy. There were only about two and a half thousand questions in it. Because in those days, computing power was so small that the memory chips couldn't contain more than a few <laughs> yeah. thousand questions. So given that, you know, I was quite trivia obsessed and I watched a lot of telly and listened to a bit of music and mm. my history. So I knew about half the answers and then it was an ABC approach so you've got a one in three chance of getting it right when you don't know it and then if you get it wrong you've then got a one in two chance the next time it comes up as long as you can remember then within about three or four months at a cost of about 30 or 40 quid you know every single answer to every single question How amazing. at which point my friend it's like you've got a cash point machine which costs you nothing to take money out of and to a student who had no money isn't you know, my that parents, incredible my parents were teachers so you know I didn't get kind of handouts given right. loads of money yeah, yeah. you know they were, they were perfectly generous and helpful but you know it wasn't an no, no, expensive no. lifestyle so uh, or, or at least it wasn't my, my lifestyle was expensive but it wasn't supported so <laughs> um, having worked this out with a friend we looked on the side of one of the machines and I can see it clear as daylight. It said Claremont Leisure. Got a telephone number on it. And so we rang it up. A friend of mine who, I won't tell you his name, but he now works for the BBC. Right. In quite a senior capacity. Uh, rang up and said, hello, we're from the ISIS magazine at Oxford University and we've done a survey and discovered that your machine, Skillcash, uh, I think Strike It Lucky was another one with the same stable, have come second and third 
in our survey of favourite quiz machines. <laughs> no, not first. And we'd love to go and interview some people about it. But um, we're staying at a moment in London. I gave my postcode and said, can you, can you give us maybe 10 or 15 pubs where uh, this machine is so that we could go and interview some users? And this very helpful woman on the other end of the phone said, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> How gave us 15 pubs in a three-mile radius. And you think that, you know, on average, there'd be like 20 quid in each machine. Um, yeah, we, we were raking. So you were actually making in very good money? Oh, a couple hundred quid a week, yeah. Wow. Uh, and in those days, that was... Yeah, yeah. And it's all in cash. And if I'm brutally honest, I mean, I was theoretically still looking for work. So I was on the dole in those days. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I probably had my best... So it was your own year. version of the Danny Boyle, He Wants to Be a Millionaire film, where you knew the answers to everything yeah. through... Well, bloody-mindedness, great knowledge, and also the fact that you'd honed your skills as a young child competing with your brothers and sisters. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was basically it. And, it. and it felt like... I mean, it's, it's just crazy looking back on it now, because um, it feels very unambitious, doesn't it? But, but it, was, it was a kind of heaven to be a 22-year-old and then spend a year just popping in and out of pubs in the afternoon when your mates were going off on the tube every day to yeah. become, you know, to work as on a fast track civil service scheme in a, in a ministry of fish. Yeah. And having to sit through mind-bogglingly tedious meetings. Sure. And I and my friend would go for four hours in the pubs within a three-mile radius of Tooting, have lunch in one of them, pull out 80, 90 quid in coins, do that five days a week, Amazing. then hang out with your mates at the weekend. It's It's... It, I mean, it's awful, really, and I would. Uh, and it it's should. Incredible. Nobody should do no. that, and they should want to do something more. But but, but how, how did that come to an end? How did you then go right? I've had well, the machines. The machines started to have a lot more questions in them. Right. Okay. And then they started to change because it, it became a bit of a thing. I mean, when I was doing it at university, there was a guy who'd come second in Mastermind who used to clean up, and there were a couple of other people who did the same thing. We had a little calling card, so. If you'd just taken money out of a machine, you lit a cigarette and you placed it filter side down vertically on the top of the machine so that if some one of us walked in, we could look and see that machine had just been taken, don't waste your time, because you could see the ash and made a little curl and wow. go, aha. So um, the, the manufacturers of the machines and the, and the pub landlords started to say, well, you know, what, what use is this machine for? We're not making any money out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're always empty by the, by the time somebody comes to sort of deal with yeah, them, there's yeah. nothing in them. Yeah. So I started working with the father of a good friend of mine from school who had been the finance editor of Daily Express. And he had set up something um, that involved what was called EDI, Electronic Data Interchange. So it's the first sort of time modems were used to send data uh, to businesses. In this case, it was pricing data because people had to get their data through I mean, unimaginable ways now. But then he'd set up this thing and, and prices could come through to a business. They'd pay for this service and they'd come through on kind of faxes and it gave them a speedier head start over other people. And this was all happening around the time of the big bang as well in the city. And then the internet came along. And so opportunities in new new media which yeah. is, were really happening in sort of the early 94, 95, 96 and we set about I remember the meetings and you know what what will people use on the internet and I remember saying well 
the cell computer peripherals, um, financial services, and holidays, because these are things that you can use the power of comparison technology. And with the weird thing about a classics degree is that you sort of learn logic a lot. You learn philosophical logic, you learn language logic. And so you found quite a lot of classicists ended up in IT. And we all, because our brains were wired in a similar kind of way. And cricket is part of it as well. So it's a kind of statistical and analytical appreciation of numbers. And um, the internet just sat snugly within the way my brain worked. So uh, what didn't sit snugly was actual business acumen, um, wearing suits, behaving in the right way, using management speak, you know, I, I was terribly bad really at fitting into a business mindset, but I found the idea that this new technology could now, instead of going to a travel agent, I mean, our first one was a travel agency, we took a load of brochures from tour operators and got people to data enter, data entry, just put in all the, all the different data points for a holiday. And this professor at University of Manchester had developed a, a search engine to go mm -hmm. behind it, which at the time was really cutting edge technology in 95. And then you could go, oh, I want a three bedroom villa in Malta and I want to pay no more than 700 pounds a week. And boom, they would pop up. Yeah. And I could see then, oh wow, you know, this is how you're, everyone's gonna do business. You're gonna take away all these high street shops, which are all independent verticals and you're gonna replace them with these like global horizontals. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, my God, there's real money in this. And whilst my, my politics have always been more to the left, I won't deny that, you know, I'm a Prosecco socialist. I, I don't see any problem with, with holding views that, you know, one should share the wealth more evenly, but at the same time, wouldn't it be great if we could all Makes buy money. a bottle of Prosecco? Yeah, of so uh, <laughs> I, I looked to try to develop these businesses with this fellow. And unfortunately, over the course of three or four years, you know, we, we, we didn't succeed as quickly as other people, as Martha Lane Fox did, you know. So, we, and in those days, there was a kind of idea that if lastminute.com, and we were building ours basically at the same time as, as they were building theirs, we didn't know that we were. Mm -hmm. uh, she got to market before us, and then you thought, oh, well, that's it. Uh, which is such a crazy way of thinking about it, that yeah. there can only be one exactly. online travel agent. And that's where we didn't really understand the internet. We saw, the, we saw it as a kind of, you know, whoever gets there first has got it. You know, Amazon's uh, going to uh, get sort it. Of space race. Yeah, kind uh, of. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly like a space race. So um, that that company folded, and it left me in 2000 completely destitute, really, because uh, I hadn't made any money out of it. I'd sort of existed of on a fairly modest, well, very modest salary through that period, and then I thought, oh my god, you know. So I'd been writing odds and sods and. Uh, in the interim and was looking to get this sitcom up and running and then somebody approached me with the idea of a, a, a play, a film really, but started it as a play and I spent about a year working on that and all the time the money was draining away when suddenly out of nowhere I was interviewed because of, again it's who you know, I mean my life has really been blessed by good fortune with who I know. 
But a friend of a friend wanted to write an article about the internet bubble bursting for a money makeover slot in the Sunday Times. And came over to my house, interviewed me, and I talked about how the, the internet had a fundamental flaw in it, which was that people had built in this assumption that advertising revenues were simply going to go up and up and up as more and more and more people went onto more and more pages. But in fact, you know, the efficacy of, of advertising in those days was literally advertising a little button on a web page. You'd click on it and it would send you through to something. Yeah. And people weren't clicking on them. And just because you had one million eyeballs didn't mean that this advertising was in we any way efficacious, yeah. you know. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, I had a little rant, thought nothing of it. And then three weeks later, I was approached by a com company called Money Extra, which was an online financial services comparison website uh, to see if I would go and be a, a project manager for them. Yeah. And this was all because, actually, a lovely bloke there called Paul Goldsmith desperately needed a new carpet. And rather than, rather than uh, pay for an, an agent to find a project manager, they would pay somebody who worked at the company half the amount of money they'd have paid the agent if they could find a project manager. And of course, he was thinking, I need 500 quid for my new carpet. Oh, look, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Wow. Got me in, briefed me, told me exactly what to say in the interview so I couldn't fail. Then I got the job, was then paid, well, unimaginable amounts of money for me. It was 70 grand a year. I thought, wow. what? That's like yeah, three times as much yeah. as I'd ever had, you yeah. know? Are you out of your mind? And I, all the time, picture myself saying, what, what work do you want me to do for this? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nearly talked myself out of the job, but it kind of saved me for a bit. How amazing. But um, inevitably, there was another crash uh, at the end of 2001, so I was made redundant from that job. To cut a, the next bit short, I effectively went back to trying to be a writer. Um, it didn't really, it wasn't really taking. Then, what was Money Extra re-employed me when the dust had settled after the collapse two years later. And I worked for them for five years from 2004, 2003, four, till the end of 2008, when there was another crash. And this was a point when I sort of started to realize that business, if you're a project manager, you are uh, really vulnerable to the vicissitudes of economic fate. Mm. So, because you're a, a luxury product, if you don't, if the, if the company's trying to save money, what it does is it doesn't do projects. It was then, I guess, when I made redundant for the second time from that business, in the end of 2008, I just thought, right, I've, I've got to stop. Uh, I, I'm not enjoying where I'm going with this. I was coming up to 40 years old. I looked back on my life and I thought, well, you know, I failed to achieve, well, I say achieve, it wasn't, it's not that you want to be garlanded with praise and honor or whatever, sure. but the lifestyle I wanted, which was to be creatively engaged in things I was interested in, I wasn't getting anywhere with, partly through perhaps my own lack of skill or talent, partly because it's usually competitive and it requires a bit of good fortune. But I thought I'm gonna have a crack at doing something entirely different. And, and that was the birth of Test Match Sofa. It was, and the weird thing about all of this is that um, there is a relevance to everything I've said. I mean, people listening to this might think, well, this is a very long and tedious story about somebody's kind of bad work choices. But <laughs> uh, what happened because of all the places I've been working in and, you know, the new technologies and the internet and 
was that I had met cricket lovers. I would say that roughly one in 10, one in 12 people actually quite like cricket. So I'd met well over 12 website designers. So I found one who loved his cricket and he designed my website for me for nothing. Um, because I'd played cricket with so many different people, I'd found a sound engineer who, with whom I played cricket. Um, because I'd project managed so many internet projects, mm. I've had system administrators and computer wizards. I knew one who loved his cricket, Robert Deverell, lovely man. Uh, very high-flying IT guy. And so I was able, in a slightly entrepreneurial way, I guess, to leverage their interest in cricket with my desire to set up a cricket commentary service. And this is where, where's the leap? Why cricket commentary? Well, I'd lis listened to cricket all my life, from the age of seven, in effect. When you're driving down to Wales on horrible family holidays, the radio's on. At night, during Ashes tours, you're there with a little transistor radio, getting crackly coverage from Australia or India or wherever. Um, when I was at work, you know, pretending to work with a Gantt chart or an Excel spreadsheet open, headphones are on, you're listening to the cricket. So I've been brought up with the rhythms of cricket commentary. <laughs> I sort of, I commentated my own innings in my head, you know, in cricket commentary and really arrogantly thought, well, I can do this. How can you not do this? I mean, I think in it, it's like, it's like, a, it's like English to me. It's like, well, how, how hard can it be? Uh, so... Uh, I gathered together friends who, with whom I played cricket. It was surprisingly easy to find people who really wanted to say stuff about cricket. Uh, now I think back on it, it's not surprising at all because cricket fans are extremely engaged in the sport and have opinions and want to talk about it. Uh, the difficult thing was setting up the technicals and having a website. Once I'd nailed that, then actually sitting down in my sitting room in tooting and watching the game unfold and talk that was the easy part except then was the moment you realized oh it's not that it's harder than it looks it's just that actually it isn't just that is it it isn't just that you commentate balls you've got to have a point of difference between yourself and something else if you want to be an alternative and if you want to be alternative commentary so we were loose we allowed swearing, we drank, we started to introduce jingles, we started to interact with our listenership. And Test Match Special had done that a bit during the Brian Johnson era, and you know, you'd get letters in from people. But Twitter arrived 2009 10, just as we were starting. And this gave us a direct line to our listeners, and then yeah. they became part of the program. And it's, again, it's one of those things where by accident what I was doing was stuff that was going to be commonplace in five or six years, but at the time was really new. Well, that's what I was going to say. You were incredibly ahead of your time in terms of getting your digital audience to push the agenda. And by, by good luck. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. I didn't, I, I'm not prescient. I didn't, no. ha I didn't see it coming. It just, no. Everything has just sort of happened by accident, really. Of course. But then it also gave you the feel to be able to grow your audience um, organically yeah. but at a rapid rate which led you to having up to 50,000 It did, yeah. I mean there were a couple of drivers for that. One of them obviously was the interactive capacity with Facebook and with Twitter, uh, emails and what have 
and getting the, the really involved in the listenership so they would write our own jingles, sometimes send us in stuff, because people love that, because then they can hear their own contribution repetitively reproduced on the program. But I suppose uh, the other part of it was, and this is where it comes back to really good fortune, you know, I went to a university where I met people who uh, had a wide circle of creative friends. So. Um, one of my friends introduced me to some comedians. I got to know Andy Zaltzman and Mark Steele. Um, I got to know some cricket journalists who in turn introduced me to cricketers like Ian O'Brien. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the program was not just four or five balding middle-aged fat blokes and some energized women ranting at screen. It started to have a really credible different alternative voices and when I look back on those early broadcasts I mean within two years we had on the program um, Mark Steele who's done a view from the boundary on TMS we had Andy Zaltzman who's now the scorer on ODIs we had Jared Kimber who's now the um, the team analyst for Team Scotland but has you know written books and, and he'd never done anything really done a blog yeah. that was it Lizzie Ammon, who's, uh, you know, yeah, one of the main Lizzie. writers on The Times. Yeah. Um, Gary Naylor, who writes a lot for The Guardian. Uh, there were lots of... So it gave birth to this new generation of commentators and analyst, yeah. uh, analysts and broadcasters. Well, people who worked, worked yeah. it, used it. I'm not going to say they used Test Match Sofa as the springboard to get into cricket, but whether it's happy coincidence or whatever, we were all arriving at the same kind of time and we we're all helping each other. And it is a, it's a new world. I mean, I, I now work a lot with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and they started White Line Wire in Australia a couple of years after we did The Sofa. And Alternative Cricket Commentary New Zealand, which has done really well, also started after Test Match Sofa. We were, sort of, they were the first one to do it. And then people could see, well, the technology is getting easier. Streaming was getting faster. A really crucial part of this is the technology always. So in 2005, we couldn't have done test match sofa because the quality of the live stream just wouldn't have come through no. people's internet connections quickly enough by 2009 technology was improving and it keeps improving keeps improving so now you know it's really easy for people to make podcasts to stream live commentaries and do whatever and so yeah i was i i'm not i don't think i made that change happen i was just I was there yeah, when it so started. You facilitated a new movement. Um, I was well taking, you know, taking I took on your side and advantage of the incredible things which were starting to be on offer. Yeah, that's that's Tell more us. what it was. I took yeah. advantage of it first, but um, I don't think, you know, sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, you were a pioneer in it." I, d I don't ever feel like we were pioneers. I feel like we we did it first. Yeah. Yeah. But that's. It was a happy accident of time and fate and people. You can't do these things without uh, people. To make Test Match Sofa was a massive collaborative exercise. You know, there, was, there were a couple of years when we did 180 days a year and right. weren't paying people anything. No. So we were getting sponsorship from listeners mostly, a couple of companies, um, and that paid for our servers. It paid for the rent on the, because we moved to a flat so that we could have a dedicated studio in Peckham of all places. I know eventually you guys came to, I don't know, let's say a dispute somewhat with the ECB where they said, look, I know you're not 
statistically breaking rules, but yeah. you're treading on eggshells here. Yep. And did they just say to you, um, look, we think you're brilliant. If you shut down Testament Sofa, we'll give you a gig. No, that's, that's not how it worked. No, uh, I can see why you might think that. Well, what, what happened is that for 2009, 10 and 11, we were entirely self-funded and fan-led. And we were doing it in the latter part of it out of this flat in Peckham. And I don't think anybody really felt threatened by it. It was just a bit of fun. Um, the cricket establishment very much ignored us. Where things got awkward was that, I'll be honest with you, we were running out of money. And both my parents had died uh, one after the other in 2009, beginning of 2010. Yeah, both quite suddenly. But they'd left me a very modest inheritance, all of which was being used For to sure. maintain the sofa and my, my life because I wasn't yeah. earning anything, you know. Uh, and I had a mortgage and I had a wife who was earning but not enough. So by the end of 2011, the coffers were empty um, and I had to find a way of funding Testament Sofa or it was going to have to stop. And in the end, I sold Testament Sofa to the Cricketer magazine for, oddly enough, pretty much the amount of money that I put into it. Then you had to pay certain people off because I had shares in it, what have you. Um, and now the cricketer owned it and they were going to pay me a modest salary to produce it and run it as, a, as it was, but professionalize it. And crucially, because the cricketer was now involved in the cricketer as an establishment magazine, the authorities, ECB particularly, and to a degree the BBC, started to look at this. And Jonathan Agnew was on the board of the cricketer, and I totally understand now, you know, why he felt this way. I, at the time, I was rather naive, but it suddenly felt like an establishment entity was now trying to threaten the BBC and broadcasting generally with what, what I mean, it's not a pirate radio station because we didn't have the feed, we didn't have access to the players, we didn't have all the things that come with paying for rights, but we were an alternative radio broadcast, if you yeah. like, or at least audio broadcast. So this was now seen as a threat by the ECB, a threat to the value of their radio rights. And I, I then lost my love of what I was doing because for me, it had just been fun. It had been a great creative outlet. It was a fantastic way of thera therapy, really, after my parents had died so suddenly and rapidly. And I'd flung myself at it and mm. I'd watching so much cricket and the camaraderie. And, you know, one minute I've got Rory Bremner there. The next minute I've got, you know, Ollie Rayner and Tim Murta. And well. then there's Graham Fowler and Martin Bickley. How on earth Amazing. is this happening to me? This is so much fun. Uh, and then it stopped being fun because I was now the bad boy of cricket and I was threatening English cricket. And I didn't like that. Join us in part two as we discuss everything from finishing up with Test Match Sofa to becoming the hottest new commentator in global cricket on the famous Test Match Special.